This is an ABC podcast. My guest on Conversations today is Umberto Clerici. Umberto is the new chief conductor of the Queensland Symphony Orchestra. And both these things, Australia and conducting, are relatively new for Umberto. He's Italian and his family have lived in the northern city of Turin for many generations. And for most of his musical life, Umberto has been playing the cello rather than conducting an orchestra. It's an instrument he was taught to play as a little boy while sitting on something he calls the chair of torture. Hello, Umberto. <laughs> Buongiorno. <laughs> Tell me about this chair. What was it? What did it look like? Oh, so it was a chair full of spikes and it was designed to make you sit uh, still, not to move your head, not to bend it, also to have your elbows high enough. Uh, the cello, it's, it's like a, you have to a little bit hug it, like, and therefore if the uh, arms are too low, then you can't really play with a proper sound. The thing is that this chair was used when I was six Six. So, and literally spikes coming out of it. I mean, it sounds like a medieval torture yes, instrument. Yes, a, a little bit, a little bit. Also, you know, it was, this was 35 years ago, so times changed. <laughs> but my former teacher was actually, is a very creative, extremely good teacher and a very creative man, but he was very strict. The funny part, if I can see from outside now that I'm 40, I remember still now, and I was six, his face when he tried this chair with me. I was very vivacious, I would say, so it was difficult to contain me. And so this chair was the perfect tool to contain me. But my mother, because at the Suzuki school, the parents have to be present, and my mother was always present. My mother now is retired, but she was a Supreme Court judge for... Um, criminal uh, um, felonies. So, you know, she was dealing every day with uh, homicides and really bad stuff. And I remember his, him asking my mother, is it okay? And my mother, that couldn't contain me either, said, absolutely, I want a copy of it to have at home. <laughs> she wanted to put you in a chair as well. Yes. <laughs> oh, was Did you ever get pierced by it or did it work? Did it, did it let you bring your energy into the cello? Well, you know, it, yes. I, I think I still remember... It, it, it was not meant to be a torture but to be a guide that to, for the rest of your life. So I still have a little bit this instinct that when I lowered my arm when I played the cello, it's, you know, these wirings that we have from our childhood and say, OK, no, you shouldn't do that. Not because it was painful, but because it was the right thing to do. So your mother was, was a judge. What about the rest of your family? Are there musicians in the Clerici family tree? Actually, no musician. I only had um, an aunt that I never met because it was in the early... 20th century, so 100 years ago, and she started a great opera singing career. She won one of the biggest competition auditions that there were at the time, but because of the times when she got married very young, then the husband that was um, a businessman says, no, no, I don't think this is the right, I can't. I mean, the paradox probably, I don't I never met them, but he was really seduced by the fact that she was an artist and a singer, and this until she married her and then say, yes, now you are all for me. So that is the only musicians. All the other members of my family are 
lawyers or judges. I'm basically surrounded by law, so I have to behave, basically. <laughs> <laughs> how far has, or how long has this been the case with your family? Oh, uh, actually, I don't know, but at least four or five generations. So I remember uh, uh, in a basement of my parents' uh, apartment, that is a building built in 1760, in the basement, there is a plaque of... Uh, of my grand-grand-grandfather was chief judge. So if I wouldn't have been a musician, probably I would have followed the law. So what did that mean for the kind of environment in your in your family? Was it uh, people quite stern? Is there a, a sense of, of punishment if you do the wrong thing? What atmosphere is there to be in, in a family of such upholders of the law for so many generations? I think two things. The first one, it was that... It was important to have a general culture, so to have a proper education. Uh, in Europe, particularly in Italy, we still have a quite old humanistics-based um, formation. So that was the first thing. The second is, while my mother, despite being a judge, she's a crazy woman in the sense that she's really so flamboyant. And sometimes, you know, when <laughs> I remember her driving us around and using the horn of the car more often than a horn, a French horn in orchestra, you know, <laughs> to the point that she would exhaust it. And I was thinking, Mom, you are a Supreme Court judge. You can't do this. <laughs> My father was always a lawyer, you know, was a lawyer also at home. Everything had to be taught before being said. So she really pushed me and my brother, who is a violinist, to study music. She didn't want necessarily that we became professionals. She thought it was a very good way for a kid to expand the horizons, you know, also socially, a group of kids that have shared the same passion, even when they were young. So this dichotomy between my mother that really was for the arts and my father said, no, no, absolutely. First you study at university, something else, and then we will see, actually create a little bit of tension. But at the same time, the musician I am now is thanked to, to this too. What do other Italians say about people from Turin? Oh, they say that they are uh, not real Italians. Um, it's a little bit like Melbourne and Sydney, but you have to multiply by two or three thousand years. <laughs> so the roots are so deep that actually the rivalry is really crazy. So. It's between even cities very close by, Florence and Lucca or Pisa and Livorno, all in Tuscany. But, you know, Dante would be exiled. So, you know, you have to leave the city and would go 40 kilometers away. <laughs> and there was a hero. And so Italy is really divided north and south in a way, in mentality. And my mother's mother, so my grandmother from my mother's side, was from really the south of Italy because there was this big exodus for the big Fiat factory. Torino was very, very industrialized. Fiat, Lavazza for the coffee, Olivetti for the technology. So a lot of southerns migrated between the wars and immediately after the Second World War. And she was the heart of the family, you know, really warm. Basically, I wanted to live with my grandmother. You know, it's the woman of my life in a way. Uh, while the, from the north, we tend to be reserved, 
you know, we say, we like to say that the north of Italy is the most industrialized place in Europe. It's more industrialized even than the south of Germany. It's just we have the baggage of the south of Italy. Unfortunately for us, the south of Italy is what makes Italians Italian. Hmm. You know what I mean? Uh, it's the creativity, the spark, the joy, the smile. And I really like to have this drop of uh, southern... Um, <laughs> you mentioned, Umbaro, that your um, mother was involved in your early training as a musician as part of the Suzuki method, where parents have such a, a crucial role. Was that appealing for her, this high court judge who's also such a flamboyant driver on the streets of Turin? <laughs> How did she feel about joining you in your music lessons, do you remember? Well, you know, my mother wanted to be a ballet dancer, and uh, she when she was uh, young, I would say, in the 50s, the only really ballet uh, academy was in La Scala, in Milan, that for Australian standards is really close because Torino and Milan are 130 kilometers apart, but for Italian standards, particularly at the time, was another world. Therefore, she couldn't really join that because my grandfather was also uh, a judge saying, no, I think, you know, it's, it's impossible, it's too complicated, also it's not the right path. So my mother always had this desire of artistic expression. And when she saw that the Suzuki school, the Suzuki method was important in Italy, in Torino, we just went to listen to a concert of the orchestra and she thought, ah, it's a very good idea. It's true because you see these 50, 60 kids all between eight years old and 13, 14, that they are really communicating and enjoying being on stage. And also the Suzuki method is a very nice idea in the sense that you don't learn uh, the, the, an instrument academically. So reading the music and then understanding the technique. And But it's like you learn your mother language. So basically it's by imitation. You have to be very young. And so you see your teacher and then at home your parents and you imitate them. Of course, the problem is that my mother never played an instrument. So she had to learn, at least for the first year, a little bit of the instrument in order to make me um, imitate her at home. And then went south quite quickly that, but then I was convinced. That when I was seven, I knew I wanted to be a musician. Why? What, what was it that grabbed you? What I still love on stage, particularly when I play, is, you know, is that moment somebody calls is the zone, somebody calls, but is that moment in which nobody can really bother you? You have the control of the time because music is the art of timing. And so there is no email, no phone, but also that is a moment in which time stays still. That I always liked. The second thing I liked is the social aspect. You know, it's a little bit like when you play sport. I played soccer for many years when I was young, but you join a group that has the same interest. We went to music camp that was for weeks and weeks, and we played, and we played both music or games. I remember table tennis, and, you know, we stayed there for a month. It was really a music camp. And so, you know, you have the feeling that you are part of the same community and so socially and also when you are good it makes you it's like in sport just the different community was the discipline something that appealed to you or no. was that an obstacle well it's always an obstacle discipline but you know it's the friction between the the desire and this is really an italian genetic the desire of breaking every rule <laughs> but at the same time having strict rules that 
first of all contains a little bit your instinct but also makes the breaking of the rule much harder <laughs> is this is the challenge of as strong as the rule as better and um, tasteful is to try to go around them not necessarily break them but to go around them so uh, just an, an example in these music camps of course at 10 o'clock or 9 30 in the evening lights off with these big rooms boys one side girls in the completely other side of course this made it very appealing to try to challenge the system and to get to the girls room <laughs> even if we were eight nine so it was absolutely uh, harmless but it was the point of you know it's like to go to rescue the princesses <laughs> and because my former teacher was really strict i remember first thing 9 30 everybody shuts up of course as soon as you say something to your friend and this okay uh, Clerici, come with me, please. Uh, say, oh, no, no, now, 15 minutes of scales, arpeggios, and this. So you stayed in this big room by yourself, uh, and he's going around like a sentinel, you know, like a guardian, and, and you're playing this. Then you go back to the room, and your friend says, what did you do? And say, oh, I did scales and arpeggios. Clerici, again, with me. <laughs> so I just, no, 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 the rules are rules. Oh God, so now half an hour. And so I played so many scales in those music camps that I, I didn't, you know, musicians need to do technique and scales for all their life. But I did so much at that age, eight, nine, ten, that since I'm a professional, like 18, 19 years old, I never touch a scale anymore. <laughs> I did for the rest of my life and probably the next two or three lives. <laughs> you did all that practice. Why was it the cello that became your instrument? Because at the time at the Suzuki school, you could only choose between a violin and a cello. I was kind of, I wouldn't say chubby, but kind of solid. And so the cello actually looks better. But more than this, basically, there was a demo. So two players, one year older than me, I was five and a half, so I would say six, seven. One played the violin and one played the cello. The idea was, okay, we show you what you will be able more or less to do in a year. So you, you know where is the path, because a string instrument takes so long to learn. You know, a piano too, but at least the sound of the piano is already there. You, you might miss all the right notes, but at least the sound you can't really destroy. It doesn't it. hurt to yes. listen to. <laughs> so... The cello was a very small cello, almost a viola, actually, with an end pin. And because low frequencies needs most body, it was basically harmless or silent. You know, you could... When you put a mobile on a, on a table and you let it just not ring but vibrates and does this... This was the sound of the cello. I, it, did, it didn't sound sexy at all, but it didn't sound... Uh, atrocious. Then the violins come in, and of course it's a miniature violin, and this guy go goes for it, really. And so it's it, it felt like you put a cat in a washing machine and you put a spin on. And it was, cr and I was thinking, you know, it's the time in which you also start school, grade one, and so you have this feeling of the imposition of life, that until then it was the best time of your life. You were at home or a kindy and basically you were the king of the house. And then, you know, the, your paradise done. Now the purgat purgatory starts. <laughs> and so I was thinking, I, I remember thinking, oh, I already have to go five. Actually, at the time it was six days a week to school now. And I also have to play an instrument that was really not my idea. 
and I can't I can't bear that violin. You know, it's at least let's play the phone vibrating on the table. It's fine. So that was a little bit the why I chose <laughs> Very cello. Unromantic way to getting you to choose the cello. Yeah. Russia and Russian musicians play an important part in your musical story. What was special about the first time you listened to the Russian cellist Rostropovich? Oh, that's what, you know. Cellists, in a way, historically, they um because their repertoire is not as big. In the solo world, the three really instruments that they can do an entire career only solo is the piano, the violin, and the cello. But the the repertoire, because actually an instrument is defined by how many pieces and which kind of pieces you can play, the repertoire of the piano is probably 80, 90 times wider than the cello and the violin is probably three or four times wider or or maybe 10. Therefore, you have much less pieces to choose from. And in a a way, cellists has to be more creative and more open-minded than the others because of this reason. So Pablo Casals before Rostropovich was, you know, really fought against Franco, the dictatorship in, in Spain. He left Spain and really protested for all his life. He was a political figure, was very famous everywhere. Everywhere he was going to play, he would play the Song of the Birds, a Catalan folk song that symbolized freedom. Rostropovich left Russia, like a lot of artists escaped, went to Washington. He became an ambassador of the resistance in the Cold War. Then when the Berlin Wall uh, fell, he was there playing Bach. So cellist tends to be they want to be more than their instrument. They want to be ambassador of humanity. And so Rostropovich was this mythical, mythological figure. And I remember he played, he came to play in my city in Torino. And I just won my first small competition, it was 9-10. And let's say the first prize was, I don't know, six, seven hundred dollars. And the, the ticket for that concert was like 250. And I remember the feeling of like basically an aeroplane. He played like an aeroplane in the sense that he was, the sound was enormous. It's like I couldn't even almost hear the orchestra. And he was his aura, his personality that was just, it, it was amazing. And, you know, he was not a charming or a handsome man. He's like a statue. It's like you one of the, you know, the David, uh, Michelangelo's David there. And, but not for the beauty, but for the, for the presence. And then you spent quite a bit of time in Russia uh, at different points in your playing. Why is that? Oh, because, first of all, the tradition of Russian strings is incredible. Most of the greatest, when recordings, when I was young, you know, so, so recordings from the 80s, 90s were from Russian players. Also because Russia always used music and sport as a part of propaganda. So they really, in Russia at the time of the Soviet Union, to be a musician, to be a successful musician, meant to have a much better life than most of the people. Only the politicians and KGB had, of course, all the privileges. But the rest was sportmen. That and you know, if a sportman, your uh, career lasts really short, but a musician can last all your life. So, because of this political push, the the quality of the players was incredible. And then they have, probably for cello, the biggest competition in the world in Moscow is called the Tchaikovsky competition, starting in the 50s. Um, and it's a sort of Olympics 
uh, games for, for music. You need all your life. It's the best players in the world. They go there. It's a tournament of a month. And so I went there and I won a prize. At the end, all these uh, thousands of applications, they get reduced, reduced until you have five final um, prize winners. And that opened quite a lot of concerts in Russia. And because I always like to explore, I had a, the agent, a bit dodgy, but actually was good, you know, somewhere. <laughs> and he says, would you like to go to play in the Far East Russia? Because we know Russia basically for Moscow and St. Petersburg, but it's a little bit like Brisbane with the rest of Queensland. It's really close to the European borders, but the rest of Russia is enormous. And so he proposed me a Trans-Siberian trip. So to do, uh, and I was young enough, I was 22, to <laughs> say, yes, let's do it. And I loved it. It was so hard to do it, but it was great. How were you greeted as a musician there by people in, in that far distant part of the country in Siberia? What, what did they make of you? Well, as a musician, it was great because because of the Soviet Union system, this Rostropovich or Richter or the best musicians would, when they were confined to Russia, would only tour in Russia and constantly all Russia. So these people that they had small villages, no infrastructures, and uh, for an Italian was difficult to food the food there, you know, for because all was <laughs> can the still see your pain. Oh my god! <laughs> uh, you know, some uh, because of course it's a land, very cold land, particularly in the far east, it's always frozen. So you know, we are used as Mediterranean as tomatoes and mozzarella and you know all the Mediterranean vegetables and olive oil, and then basically it's only potato and carrot. <laughs> and and pork fat that I remember is called salo, uh, and this and it was uneatable. And say no, but with vodka, it's like with you know with with benzene you can eat anything. <laughs> but they were very very highly cultivated. I really remember concerts in front of uh, 500, 600 students. They all played an instrument very well. So actually, musically was a great and to see the this dichotomy, this friction between a simple way of life, at the same time, a quite deep uh, insight into classical arts. Mm. That, and come, sometimes, you know, say, well, it's a remote city, you say, who's coming here? You say, well, the last cellist they played here was Rostropovich 10 years ago. You know, say, oh my God, why do we want to spoil <laughs> the memory? <laughs> what instrument were you playing during your career as a as a cellist? What was your um, what was your cello? What was its history? That is, is a good question. Um, I didn't buy my own cello until 10 years ago. Because the problem is that old instruments sound better than new ones for several reasons. One is getting all the instrument loses all the water and the liquids in the wood, so it becomes more mineral, therefore it's more resonant. The second is that playing an instrument, the vibration mold the, the wood, so it, the, the amount of surface that vibrates gets bigger and bigger. So, and all the instrument, you know, this all this um, mythology about Stradivarius and this. The problem is that they are so expensive, these instruments, that it's almost impossible for a young player. So I played very good instruments, but all given by either owners that they had it in their family or banks or foundations that they... They are Deutsche Bank or the Nippon Foundation, they bought a lot of Stradivarius. It's impossible. You know, we're talking some particular Stradivarius over 
five, six, seven million dollars, it's possible. And then until a certain time where 10 years ago I bought an instrument that is not as valuable as Rivari, but it's uh, valuable enough and it belonged to the principal cello of the opera in Paris. The maker is called Testore, who made this instrument in 1758 in Milan, and then somehow, sometime, traveled to France. And I don't know the history before him, but between the 50s and the 80s belonged to him. Then he died, the widow kept it. And when the widow died, the kids said, okay, we don't play the cello, we need to. But if you think how much this instrument these instruments in general, if they could talk not just music but words, what they saw, you know, they saw the Industrial Revolution, the French Revolution, the both world wars, and the amount of, you know, music and travels and sweat and passion and frustration that got injected. That is what they make so special. For me, it's like a travel time machine, a travel into the past. Also, when we had a strongest relationship with the natural elements of the world, we didn't have computers, we didn't have carbon analyzers, so they could cut a tree in the north of Italy, uh, in the Dolomites, actually, a region, a spruce, and they would say, okay, the shape of this instrument will be like this because this wood tells me that. Now we have to, you know, put an X-ray, uh, we lost this touch. So it feels like your instrument is very human to yes. you. Yes, yeah, absolutely. You know, um, what I often say is that he's not my cello, but I'm his cellist because I'm his custodian. In Italian, cello is male, so I always say he sounded and played for 250 years before me, playing him, and then... When I will retire, I will play anymore, and so I will give it. I will sell it is not the right word. I will give it to another custodian. Probably will sound for the next four or five hundred years. Uh, it depends about the global warming. So, you know, I'm just a small part of its or his path and not vice versa. Podcast. Broadcast. This is Conversations with Sarah Konoski. Hear more conversations anytime on the ABC Listen app. So... Umberto, what first brought you from Italy to Australia? Curiosity and a lot of friends. There was a moment in which friends around me, but general Europeans, I would say 10 years ago, were really talking about Australia. Having very long roots and very deep roots, it's in a way also can jinx a little bit you as a young artist because, you know, if you play in Italy, you're famous for Italian opera, Traviata, Bohème, Verdi, Puccini. And so basically you tour, but you always tour with that. And so in a way, it's a little bit limiting this because of course you have a huge expertise, but everybody expects that you always do that. Australia, it has a European heritage, um, not just as an English 
country, but it's also, there's a lot of uh, Europeans. So has the taste for classical arts, but at the same time is young enough to say, okay, can we try to do this differently? How long did you plan to stay? Oh, probably six months. <laughs> and it was because my colleagues were very nice and because I met my wife. And then, of course, uh, after I met my wife, we didn't want to meet anyone at the time, both. Then we met at the Opera House, actually, and we I was away for a tour, so we wrote each other very old-style relationship uh, for two months, actually. Is and she a musician too? Oh, no. She's, of course, we, with my family tradition, she couldn't be anything else in that in the law. So when I met her... <laughs> She's a lawyer. When I met her, she <laughs> was a lawyer, and now she is a judge. So actually, she covers both uh, parts of my family. That's perfect. How different... I mean, maybe the difference was clearer when you first arrived, but what are the differences between... Australia and Italy, and how does that come out in the way that, that orchestras play? Uh, I think Australia and Italy, in a way, are the opposite. Both have very strong plus sides, but I think after now, it's almost 10 years I live here, the society works much better in terms of global society because there are rules, everybody understands the rules, not necessarily they understand the reason of the rules, but they understand that is the way to make us all live in the same space. In Italy, it's all based on personal connections. Connections also, you know, therefore, everything is impossible if you don't know the right person or everything is possible. <laughs> therefore, on a small scale, works very well. Because, you know, rules are fine, but shades are so many more than the rules. <laughs> so what does that mean for, for music? There is a movie that is just 40, 50 minutes long uh, that you can find on YouTube by uh, famous old director Fellini that's called Proved Orchestra, Orchestra's Rehearsal. And it's, of course, it's almost a caricature, but it's not really. It's an extreme version of an Italian Proved Orchestra. It's such a mess. You know, everybody... Everybody has to have a say. People, half of people strikes. And the other people say, no, no, I don't like this piece. I'm not going to play it. So it's just a mess. <laughs> and only the moment in which everything is aligned, like Mars and Jupiter, then it's amazing. But the rest, it's just a mess. While in Australia, it's exactly the opposite. So what we, and I'm trying to transfer here, is that in art, we need to be braver, we need to be more adventurous. When we are on stage, we need to transcend a little bit what we are. It doesn't matter if we are shy or sad. or That is the moment in which you have to communicate what you are doing. So if the music is cheerful or cheeky or tragic or sad or, uh, you know, thoughtful, sometimes I feel in Australia we are a little bit shy on express our emotions. And through art, you can you can actually express it, and and sometimes it's difficult to find uh, to to break that barrier. And of course, because in in Europe the tradition is longer, everybody knows how to play a piece. So the first rehearsal, everybody just know. And so if you want to change it, that is the problem because they are used to play this hundred since two hundred years. Uh, one of my first experience in orchestra was very young. I was substituting principal cello in La Scala in Milan. One of the probably the most famous opera house in the world. And we were doing 
Verdi Requiem, and I remember turning to the rest of the section and say, can we just change this bowing? Means you can, you know, with a bow, you can down, go up or down. And the, the back desks said, absolutely, you can't change any bowings. Uh, and why? Because these are Verdi's parts. Verdi was conducting this, <laughs> and this is his parts. There's no point to change. So that is obviously great. At the same time, you are condemned not to do anything different. What in Australia is, in a way, is the opposite. You arrive to the first rehearsal, and sometimes it's a little bit white, and then you have to put the ingredients and the sauce on it <laughs> in order to make it. So it's more malleable. It takes just a little bit longer. Was conducting always a dream of yours? Absolutely not. I always, from <laughs> orchestra players, uh, hate conductors. <laughs> <laughs> Why? What, they're like the, the Be teachers? Yeah, because, <laughs> because they are aliens, you know, in the sense that you have somebody with a baton that in theory is in control of the music, but at the end is the only one doesn't produce any music, doesn't produce any sound. So you have 80 people, this guy in front of them, giving the back to the audience. So it's clearly not the main actor, because <laughs> otherwise which kind of show has the main uh, character giving the back to the audience? And at the same time, tell them or ask them how it should go without producing any sound. And because music is a oral art and not a visual art. So this is why tendentially orchestra musicians think conductor is it's, it's very important because when the amount of musicians is too high, it's impossible to be together only visually and to listen all the parts. At the same time, often we think he's, he's an imposter. What do we want? So how did your first opportunity come about and why did you say yes? It started like this. I always had a score, a full score with me in uh, rehearsals in orchestra because I was always interested since I was seven to interact with the others through music. So with the score, you can see things that you not necessarily can hear on a big stage. You know, ah, here we play with the flute, there the horns have the second beat. So if it's a little bit late because of the distance, we have to wait for them. So I was always interested in this interaction. So after many years having the score, my colleague says, are you going to be a conductor? Because only usually conductors have score. I say, no, I just am interested in know, in understanding how the piece works a little bit more closely and then I can play. So because of the Suzuki school, I tend to memorize very quickly. I would play in the orchestra most of the symphonies by heart. So I would just look at my colleagues and say, okay, here we play with the horns, here's the timpani. And so my wife, because one day I said, well, maybe one day I will give it a go, just as a curiosity. For a Christmas, I think five years ago, my wife gave me the first baton, and say, well, in case, when, if you want to try, at least you have a baton. Very nice baton engraved with a very nice quote from the Don Quixote about music, that there is no evil when music is there. So I had this baton, and then started to say, okay, maybe one day I really have to do it. And so the Sydney Symphony Orchestra had a concert lined up that was not necessarily a normal classical concert. You know, the Opera House gets uh, hired by 
external promoters, in this case, was an arbitrate world convention. So, again, lawyers. More, more lawyers. More lawyers. It's like there's no escape from them. And so because lawyers, they wanted to have a concert at the Opera House, but because it was a convention, it could be a long concert. But at the same time, they didn't want to have commercial or pop music. They wanted to have, you know, a bit of Dvorak New World, an Australian piece, uh, a little bit of Mendelssohn. And so the orchestra said, it's out of the season. We don't have a conductor here. You know, this is complicated repertoire because usually for this classical repertoire, you really need a proper conductor, but nobody is available. Um, would you like to try? And say, why would I do that? I say, well, you know, you always had the score. You have this baton. Try. <laughs> and I said, but, you know, I never did it. And say, it, it is a saying in orchestra that's true. It says, you know, it's better to have a good musician that knows the music, that is a bad conductor in the sense that doesn't really use the baton, instead of having a bad conductor that is also a bad musician. So at least, you know, you can inspire your colleagues, and then if it's a little bit messy, they will um, complete the dots. And so I took it very seriously and say, okay, I wasn't going to do it. I studied for six months at the con where I was on tenure as a lecturer at the conservatorium in Sydney. So it was a colleague of mine, head of conducting, who was many years ago assistant of Leonard Bernstein. And so I went to him and said, listen, it's a bit weird for me. But then it was very good. He really was, he gave me a lot of time. So I arrived to this gig and I really didn't know because the, the difference is that you have instincts in your movements but they are so wired, these instincts, in your cello playing, because I played since I was five. So you have to relearn your instincts by moving in a different way. But the baton helps because it's, it was always the extension of the bow. At the beginning, it was the bow, and then it became a baton. So it's a stylization of a bow. So if you play a string instrument, it's easier because, in a way, it imitates the bow. It just goes sometimes up and down while the bow goes left and right. And then after the gig, my colleagues, the same colleagues that usually gives you a very hard time when you get to it, came to me and says, I think you are very talented at this. You should continue. We will support you. And so then it went very quickly because next year I had three projects uh, with regional tours and this. The other orchestra started to think, okay, if Cine Symphony Orchestra gives a colleague that it always goes bad, this, always, gives him these chances, probably is good. Mm. So they, they started. And then COVID hit, that was a little bit of a hit, but it was also good because a lot of overseas conductors couldn't travel in the country. So when we were open, there were more opportunities. So it was a fast forward <laughs> button, COVID, for me. Was it a, a big leap in your mind that you had to make, Umberto, from being part of this orchestra to stepping up and putting your back to the audience, as you say, and, and facing your colleagues? Did you have to do a, a mind flip? Personality-wise, not. That is why, you know, there's this huge tradition of Italian conductors from always, because we are raised to be a little bit that, you know, to be not ashamed of saying what we think or not ashamed to actually guide the others and to be fully committed artistically and say, no, I think this is extreme, we have to play extreme. It's part of our culture to be open and decisive and very individualistic. In Italy, if you are not, 
yourself you are weird. While I find sometimes here, if you are too much yourself, if you are young, then you they consider you weird, you know? But because I have this accent, I'm part of a different <laughs> world. You're, you're given different freedoms. Yes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I'm exotic enough, I always say. And also, I can be very strict and cutting with orchestras, but because of the accent, it gets funnier. Uh, the concertmaster of Sydney Symphony Orchestra said, you know, if you would say the same thing, it's like, you know, when the orchestra plays without any passion, and I would say, guys, it looks like we are queuing in a post office. You know, and so what are we doing? And he said, you know that if you say this with an Australian accent, they will hate you. If it's in a German accent, they would put you in jail. And with an Italian accent, they all smile. <laughs> so what's it feel like when you're there on the stage with that beautiful baton in hand and these 80, 90 musicians in front of you attending to your every move? What, what's the sensation like? I feel myself like I'm the router. So I'm the one that provides the internet connection. I'm connecting musicians. And for a conductor, the real job are the rehearsals. The rehearsals is where you connect the musicians, you make them listen to each other, because, you know, music really teaches us how to listen. We all able to talk, but how to listen. And that is where uh, what I think a conductor is, is an enabler of music making through connecting musicians. So when we arrive to the concert, the orchestra should be trained enough to listen that it gives us freedom. Is the, the live performance the most rewarding part of it for you? If the rehearsal is done properly and, you know, sometimes we don't have enough time, yes. Because you can have an excitement or an adrenaline given by two things. The first is just the performing. You are there on stage in front of 1,800 people. And so that gives you a shock of adrenaline. But also the adrenaline should come from the music itself. If we are not prepared enough, the adrenaline comes purely by the performing side. That is not really, I think, the right adrenaline because it's always this adrenaline come from fear and uncertainty. So they are all highly trained, so they get to the end, you know. And also because we are used to be so precise and the audition process in an orchestra is so crazy that what we think is not perfect, it will never be heard by uh, an audience member. But when we are ready enough and comfortable enough to actually get the music going under, inside of us, and so then the, the, the energy is through the music. So when it's very nervous, it's between the music, not because you are nervous about playing the music, <laughs> then the experience is completely different. What's it like when you come off stage after a performance like that? Oh, I just need calm. And this is what sometimes is difficult. You know, you did a rehearsal in the morning and then it's an hour or two hours performance. When And then, of course, patrons and the boards and they all, ah, let's have a function after this. It's great. It's part of the job. But that is the moment in which you would like to be in a silent place for 20 minutes. Well, what would be happening to you in that if you had that... If you could do that, be somewhere silent for 20 minutes, oh, what, just, what would it be? You just need to decompress because we can't have silence anymore in our life. You know, between all the machinery, I mean, talking cars, and but we have music everywhere, you know. 
radio, iPods, uh, our phone basically is a jukebox, and everywhere there is noise and music. It's hard to have luck of it um, after this overstimulation of a concert like that. Is it hard to sleep for you after a performance? Actually, it's hard to sleep <laughs> despite <laughs> of the performance, also for my hyperactivity. Uh, it's very hard also to wake up then. Uh, no, I don't think a performance... To, to, it's more when I study, you see the text, you understand what is written. If you study long enough, you... You know, Beethoven had all the sketches, seven years sketches, so you can see what is his mind process, why he got to the final result, what was his first idea and how did he develop there. So when you stay there and trying to understand, enter in his mind and trying, okay, seven years of development of this ought to joy, you know, and it's a very simple... Such a simple tune, but... Is simple because he worked on it for so many years. You know, would be different, he would be... You see, there's a combination of scales and fast and short notes. Then, yesterday was there in the first movement, it, the pacing is very hard, and I stayed until 2 o'clock, and then it was impossible to sleep. And every time I think, oh, why do you stay until two o'clock? You know it. How does your Australian wife cope with this hyperactivity <laughs> of this Italian maestro that she's married to? Oh, she's hyperactive too, actually, thank God. <laughs> but she's also happy that I travel so much. <laughs> I have problems in finding boundaries because music is it's not a job. Therefore, it's very difficult to unplug it. You know, if you're in the middle of your researching of how a piece should go, what did this person thought? What did this person felt? You know, if you think the premiere of Beethoven 9 changed the history of music, Beethoven was there on stage as a second conductor because he was so deaf that he couldn't really conduct. But he was so deaf that when the orchestra finished, he didn't have any idea. He was still in his core trying to understand where they were. And so there were people crying and uh, everybody standing. And this man was still facing the orchestra with his core, didn't have any idea that was finished. So the actual conductor had to tap on his shoulder and turn him and seeing this crowd. And can you imagine the feeling of that? You know, completely silent. And... And he didn't even know when he finished. Umberto, it's wonderful to meet you and, and get a little insight into your musician's mind. Thank you so much for being our guest. Oh, it's, I hope I didn't invent too many words today <laughs> and you were amazing. I hope also I didn't talk too much. It's difficult to stop me. Grazie. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Sarah Kanoski. For more Conversations interviews, head to the website abc.net.au slash conversations. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.